Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with a very good friend of mine, Dr. Asim Malotra. Asim is both a practicing cardiologist and a professor of evidence-based medicine. He's a founding member of Action on Sugar and has led work highlighting the harm caused by excess sugar consumption in our country, particularly in its role in type 2 diabetes. Asim has written for dozens of publications, including the British Medical Journal, The Guardian and Observer, BBC Online, Huffington Post, The Daily Mirror, The Daily Mail, The Daily Telegraph and The Washington Post. In 2018, he was ranked by Analytica as the number one doctor in the world influencing our thinking on obesity. His first book, co-authored with Donald O'Neill, The Pyopi Diet, was published in 2017 and is already an international bestseller. Dr. Simulotra, thank you for joining me. Lovely to see you, Steve. Last time I saw you, you were speaking at the Public Health uh, Collaboration Conference. I thought a really brilliant, brilliant speech, uh, echoing many of the, the views that we have here at Primal about yeah, how to avoid heart attacks or best steps you can do to limit your chance of getting a heart attack. You talk a lot about uh, diabetes and so on and so forth and a lot around food. And uh, uh, and then I was watching recently on the internet on some uh, YouTube-y uh, type programs of, you know, where you're actually doing you know, some surgery. Uh, and I thought, who better to come and speak to us than somebody that is obviously a practicing uh, a doctor that also has done surgery. Uh, but I, I thought, before we even get going, tell us a bit about your life story for those that haven't come across you yet. Yeah, so uh, Steve, I've been a qualified doctor now for um, almost 19 years. I qualified in 2001. I've been practicing and specializing in cardiology for the last decade or so. And uh, for me, you know, um, the journey has been a very interesting one from going from being a conventional cardiologist doing keyhole heart surgery, if you like. We call it interventional cardiology on patients with heart disease, treating people with heart attacks, to actually shifting towards prevention. Um, but for me, the original inspiration um, to do cardiology and to go into medicine was initially influenced, a little bit of influence from my parents, both of them retired doctors. My mum sadly passed away end of last year. Yeah, I heard that story. Um, but, uh, but what actually really drew me towards cardiology is I had an older brother that died when I was 11. He was 13. Oh, wow. And he, had, uh, he actually died, unfortunately, of a, a condition which was a virus that affected his heart and went into crashing heart failure within about a week of getting ill. Oh. So that had a really strong, really yeah. Yeah, really profound impact on me. Um, and as a kid, obviously at that stage, you just, you know, you think about what you can do long-term and, and um, I was fascinated by the heart at that stage. And then obviously in medical school, you know, uh, you study the human body, anatomy. Um, I loved biology and uh, I was drawn to cardiology and then that's where mm -hmm. I've, I've been for the last uh, 10 years or so. So you just mentioned, um, that you're moving more towards prevention now as well as the, the curing bit. You, you know, you've done the, the, the surgery, you've operated on people. What was the 
turning point where you said, because obviously you're doing a lot of public speaking at the moment, you're on television a lot. What was the turning point where you said, okay, I'm going to carry on being a doctor, I'm going to carry on, you know, maybe surgery and so on and so forth, but you now say prevention. What was, was, was there a light bulb moment, a eureka moment that said, actually, I've got to get into prevention? Well, I think this was building up over time for me, Steve. So when I qualified um, 2001 and started working as a junior doctor, you know, we were able to manage patients very well in, you know, being a doctor obviously can be stressful, but relatively stress-free compared to how things are now. And what I noticed over a period of time is there are more and more patients coming in with more chronic disease, more obesity, um, essentially more misery that goes with that. And that puts more stress on the system, more stress on doctors, more stress on nurses. And I thought, if we carry on like this, this whole system is going to collapse. And we are pretty much in that situation now. We're in a, a healthcare mm -hmm. crisis. So for me, uh, that was building up. And I think there's one light bulb moment really that, for, that affected me quite profoundly was, you know, at the uh, middle of the night, I'd operated on a guy um, who'd come in with a heart attack, a chap in his, in his 50s. Um, we'd saved his life, we'd put this stent in to unblock the artery, gone back to the ward, doing quite well. Next morning on the ward round, do the usual, talk to patients about the medication, see how they're doing. And I also wanted to talk about their lifestyle. I've been somebody that's been a very, um, you know, I've been a foodie personally from a personal perspective all my life. Mm -hmm. I love cooking. I love, I know the importance of good, healthy eating, etc. And uh, while I'm talking about having a healthy diet, he gets served a burger and chips. In the hospital bed? In the hospital, you know, by, by the hospital. Oh. And he says to me, doctor, how do you expect to change my lifestyle if you're serving the same crap that brought me here in the first place, pardon my language. No, no, that's absolutely fine. Um, he said it very yeah. bluntly, yeah. And, he, and he had a point. And, yeah. and I looked around me, and in fact, the hospital food environment itself, Steve, you know, we, I was hearing stuff in the news about this obesity crisis, how do we tackle it? You know, the hospital itself had yeah. become just ultra-processed food, junk food everywhere. 50% yeah. of NHS employees now we know are overweight or obese themselves. Mm -hmm. So this is a food environment problem, and we and I thought, you know, we need to start in our own backyard. So the first thing I did, interestingly, after that, I had this idea, and I'd been doing a bit. I've loved, you know, I've been doing a bit of writing uh, before this. I'd published a few articles in the in the Guardian Society about NHS and junior doctors and things like that. So got a, got a, so the family is publishing articles. I read somewhere your dad has published. <laughs> Over oh, a thousand articles, was it? He's or? prolific, my dad. He's, he's a really <laughs> inspirational man. But yeah, he's been a very one of the real sort of champions in the country in terms of doctors for the NHS for the last two or three decades. You know, he's been a prolific writer. So maybe I get that bug from him. What, but did, I think, what did your dad specialise in? What area? He's a general practitioner. Okay. Yeah, so general practitioner for about 30 years, retired now. Still very active, you know, in, in medical politics and the NHS. But um, somebody that truly, genuinely, you know, like myself, care about the National Health Service. You know, I think it's just one of the most amazing things of, of, of the, that has come out of, uh, of, of Great Britain, you know. And do you, you think know? your dad's story a little bit, you know, there are many great GPs in the country and they, they all work really hard and it's getting tougher and tougher because they're getting busier and busier. But do you think your dad's going beyond just a GP, publishing all these papers, in some ways attributed to the loss of your brother as well, that he wants to really make a difference and really wants yeah, to... Yeah, I think so. There's, there's definitely an element of that. Um, I think that, you know, he, like both my parents, very kind, compassionate people that genuinely care about the community, and that's mm -hmm. something that I was instilled in me from them. Um, so I think there's that. I think, yes, my, my brother actually had Down syndrome, so children, child with special needs, and I think that does give you a very different perspective, probably. Yes. 
um, to really care about people who are really vulnerable members of society. And that's really what we're trying to do, ultimately, is, is help those people. And the NHS is a, is a place which should be and has always um, been a, a beacon or symbol for that, for helping everybody. You know, it's about treating patients according to clinical need, not their ability to pay. So I would, you know, whether it's somebody who works as a taxi driver or a dustbin man or a CEO of a company, you know, we are able to give them best quality care, mm -hmm. irrespective of their background. And that's what I love about the National Health Service, because I think, you know, healthcare is a basic human right. Sure. Um, well, so I think it was yourself or somebody recently, maybe it wasn't you, said that you know, one of the reasons they're really out there trying to promote healthy food, healthy living, is because the National Health Service has turned more into national hospital service, in other words, post-problem, as opposed to really a national health service should be promoting what keeps us healthy. Was that yourself that said that? Yeah, it's a national illness service. It's become that, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's something my dad actually says as well. And uh, that's, so what, So in that in that sort of scenario, when obviously this, this um, episode with this patient happened, I suddenly had this idea and I thought, actually, I've been quite inspired by what Jamie Oliver had done with, mm -hmm. with school food and you know, somebody who's clearly very passionate about it. I, I personally know that getting people to eat better is maybe the most important thing they can do for their health, especially mm -hmm. right now in this public health crisis of obesity. So uh, just I just quickly interrupt you before we go to the Jamie Oliver story. Yeah. And you believe that, I mean, the main causes of death in the UK, sadly, and illnesses are still heart attacks, and now we've got cancer and diabetes. So the main things that we suffer from in the UK of chronic illnesses Diet at the heart of many of those? Absolutely, Steve. So um, the Lancet Global Burden of Disease Reports, to yeah. put things in perspective, reveals that globally now, poor diet, so not necessarily being overweight, but it's not getting good, good nutrition as well, poor diet is now responsible for more disease and death than physical inactivity, smoking, and alcohol combined. Wow. Let me say that. Let's have that one more time then. So poor diet is responsible for more deaths than smoking, alcohol, and physically inactivity put together. Combined, more disease, wow. more disease, chronic disease and death. Wow. Um, so in other words, if you want to fix healthcare, yep. we need to fix the food. And how do you fix the food when you're still serving burger and chips to the patients exactly. in hospital bed? Exactly, and how yeah. do you set the right example? You know, I said, you know, if um, we need, if doctors, we need to set the right example ourselves and stop selling sickness in our own backyard yeah. by this ultra-processed food. So what I did was I contacted Jamie via email, um, I got the email address of his PA, didn't expect a response necessarily, and um, just said, you know, I'm a cardiologist working in this cardiac center, we're serving burger and chips, you know, I think you've done great work on highlighting, you know, the harms of uh, what's going with school food and child obesity. Um, can we bring that into hospitals as well? And then, pleasantly surprised, a few weeks later, I got a reply saying, Jamie would be thrilled to meet you, would you like to come and have dinner with him in his office and with a few of the doctors and have a discussion around this? And then that kind of led to more things. I wrote an article about it. In the just to stop you there, I've yeah. heard this story before. And it's, 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 I remember you saying to me, it was brilliant because you expected somebody else to serve the food. He physically came out the kitchen himself. Yeah, having yeah. Cooked I mean, he's a, really, he's a really lovely, genuine, sincere guy. What you see on TV is the impression I had of him when I met him personally. Wow. And um, yeah, we were all sitting around having a chat and then he disappeared and was like, where's Jamie? And I just remember, I'll never forget this, he actually personally you know, put the plate on in front of me instead of seeing, I hope you enjoy this. And I'm thinking, Jamie Oliver's the same. He's serving me he's cooked for me. I, I think what, it's going to be all right. I'm ask what everybody watching and listening <laughs> said is, uh, what, what did he serve you? Um, I think it was it was uh, roast lamb in some sort of red wine Great. kind of sauce. It was delicious. Yeah, it was really good. 
Um, so yeah, that's Very how things started. And then, and then for me, uh, I then wrote an article in the Observer newspaper making this point, you know, um, it was something that the title was, I mend hearts, then I see our hospitals serve junk food to my patients, you okay. know, and they, they yeah. got a lot, quite a lot of prominence. Um, and that was the beginning of my campaign, if you like, and just trying to really understand what was at the root of the problem of the obesity epidemic. Uh, and it was a combination, as we'll talk about, of, of flawed dietary advice. Mm -hmm. But probably to some degree, equally if not more importantly, was the, the food environment. You know, it's become impossible to avoid junk food wherever you go. Yes. You know, um, yeah. well, I remember watching a BBC uh, uh, news article where, uh, it was, I think it was just before the Olympics or just post Olympics, where they'd got the person that ran the Olympics or somebody very senior, uh, James Crackman on the sofa, you were there saying that, you know, look at who sponsors the Olympics, and it's it's McDonald's. I can't remember Coca-Cola, Cadbury's, Coca-Cola, yeah. Cadbury's, and all those. And you know, this is we're, we're almost associate trying to associate unhealthy food with healthy people, and how corrupt it is. And I remember the battle you had on air because the Olympic Committee guy was going, "Well, look, we need all this sponsorship, and we'll take anybody's money effectively." I think you're right, Stephen. In fact, at that stage, it's interesting you mentioned that now because I think we've come a, a long way. And I've certainly done my bit to try and get this message out. Is that for a long time, and I would see this even when I'm working out in the gym or whatever, is people think it doesn't matter what you eat as long as you exercise, and it's all about burning calories. And we know that that is a flawed hypothesis. We know it's ineffective. We know it's basically wrong. Yes. When it comes to weight, it's all about what you eat. Exercise is great for health. You know, so it has so many benefits mentally, physically, but for weight, it's almost. 100% what you put in the top end. And 100% agree. I was a jogger and a cyclist for the 20 years I was obese. And the more I ran, the more I did on my bike, the more when I finished would then stuff my face with sports yeah. drinks and, and rewards for doing such hard work. And then what I learned from people like yourself over the years is actually the amount of calories that I or energy that I burnt on my run was probably less than what I was putting in afterwards. Exactly. So. Absolutely. In fact, there's a... Um, a professor of sports science, a very famous chap you might have heard of. Um, he's a colleague, a friend, you know, an inspiration. Timothy Noakes. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, if you have to exercise to keep your weight down, your diet is wrong. Right, very good point. Yeah, very good point. Very too. <laughs> I mean, that is it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It. And you Super can't outrun that. a bad diet. That's yeah. the other thing, right? You can't outrun a bad diet. Yeah. I think um, I was saying to you over dinner uh, uh, last night, and... Uh, by the way, we had completely primal. We had a lovely steak, didn't we, and green veg. It was great. Uh, and I was quite embarrassed because they, they said, uh, dessert. And I went, got any cheese? They went, no. I went, okay, <laughs> no dessert then. Um, but I was saying, you know, I'd love to get uh, Usain Bolt or Mo Farad on a running machine and then put somebody next to them that loves the snacking, the McDonald's, and loves their Coca-Colas and say, right, you start eating, you start running. And wire it up to a machine and have an expert like yourself there measuring everything. Because I can almost guarantee the person eating will take on more energy than Mo Farid would, would lose running on a running machine. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you Absolutely. can't outrun a bad diet. Absolutely. You can't outrun your fork. I mean, that's another way, another phrase as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people are fed into that message, Steve, because, yep. you know, having looked at it and the messages that come across, one thing I learned is. Um, that this is actually part of what we call the, the playbook, the corporate playbook of the food industry. Yes. To deflect from their own culpability, yes. their own blame, if you like, yep. in, in fueling this obesity epidemic, whether it's, you know, adding sugar to all the foods to yep. make them mildly addictive, to make people overconsume, yep. you know, um, high profit margins from cheap, sugary, ultra-processed food. 
all of that combined, one of the things they would do is their, one of their strategies to deflect from, say, you know, talking about taxing unhealthy foods or you know, banning uh, the association of junk food and sport, for example. Mm-hmm. It's all right. It's about that association with sport was actually would help their causing. It's about what you do in terms of exercise. And um, I was involved in exposing this in mm-hmm. an editorial I wrote in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, 2015 which for that year became the most read editorial. And it was, it's time to bust the myth of physical inactivity and obesity. You cannot outrun a bad diet. Yes. And really, we exposed really what, these, the, what they were doing. Um, and, and because and it's so convenient, is it not, to keep this myth going if you're a junk food manufacturer or a fizzy pop, soda-loaded, sugar-loaded manufacturer, is it not the most convenient thing to say that you're overweight, not because you're taking my product because you're inactive, and yet actually that junk food drives in inactivity. Yeah, it puts blame back onto the individual. Yes. And when I see patients who come to me, and they're, you know, some of them are struggling, and they're, they're miserable you know, because of their weight issues, they've got some health issues connected to whether it's type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, or heart disease. And the first thing I tell them is that it's, this is not your fault. This is not your fault. This is a, you know, it's a food environment issue. Your, our behavior, and this is something we, you know, we haven't fully acknowledged, a lot of people haven't acknowledged for a long time. Most of our food choices are automatic and done without full conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, despite wanting to lose weight, you're still tempted to buy that, you know, that brightly colored packaged chocolate bar at the checkout till. Sure. And the food industry know where they place products is sure. going to influence how people, where they, you know, whether they're going mm-hmm. to buy them or not. So all of this kind of is really, in a way, conspired for their interests. And unfortunately, the downside is we've got this whole um, chronic disease epidemic. So I think identifying the causes of it then it also helps us to find the solutions mm-hmm. to the problem. So talking of finding the solutions, you did a, a brilliant documentary called A Big Fat Fix. Uh, which I just thought was absolutely fascinating. For those that haven't seen your documentary, talk us through the principles of a big fat fix because for many, many years, people like myself were misled by for people glorifying sugar, if you like, and saying that it was saturated fat that was the bad guy. Yeah, I'm convinced that that was all a big myth and a lie. Tell me what you discovered uh, while you were filming you know, the big fat fix. Yeah, so I made this uh, documentary crowdfunded co-produced with a brilliant guy, a former Northern Irish international athlete called Donal O'Neill. So we co-produced this. Um, And what we did is we went to the original village, the home of the Mediterranean diet, which very few people now, more people know about it, but no one really knew about this. Mm -hmm. It's called Piopi, which is a a fishing village in southern Italy, about an hour and a half drive from Naples in a province of what we call Salerno in in northern Italy, southern Italy. And... um, they had very, they have very high longevity. So their average life expectancy is 91. Many people live over the age of 100. The village itself only has about 200 to 300 people living there. And we wanted to try and so go it's to one of those blue zones that we keep hearing about. Yeah, I mean, it could, yeah, exactly. And uh, we wanted to try and look into how do these people live, and how do we marry the way that they live and understanding what they eat and all they do with the up-to-date modern independent scientific research, which I've analyzed in depth, to try and um, get to the root of this healthcare problem in terms of what's driving obesity and heart disease and chronic disease. 
and then to really just shift the, the paradigm in the understanding of what needs to be done to combat it as well. Okay. So what are the secrets, really? Mm -hmm. What are the secrets of living healthy and well and long? And what can we learn from this village? So we went to this village, and um, one of the things as a background to understanding why, the, why I believe that the dietary guidelines are a root cause of the whole obesity and type 2 diabetes epidemic is based upon this flawed idea, hypothesis, coming from the, the 1960s and 1970s, that eating fat and specifically saturated fat caused heart disease. And that came from an American scientist called Ansel Keys. And he did something called the Seven Countries Study, where he found a correlation with people eating fat with cholesterol and then heart disease. But the correlation was, was, wasn't very strong. It wasn't a high quality study. He seemed to be selective. We don't know why he chose. There were 16 countries he could have chosen. He only chose seven. If he'd chosen all 16, the correlation would have been even weaker. And um, we wanted to re-examine what, so as a result of his, his research, he was basically the most influential man in changing dietary guidelines in 1977 in the USA and 1983 in the UK. And those dietary guidelines then basically said we should consume less than 30% of all our calories mm -hmm. from fat and less than 10% from saturated fat. The food industry came on the back of this and then suddenly started promoting and marketing low-fat foods which had added sugar. You take the fat out, it doesn't taste as good, you have to replace it with something you add sugar. And now when we reflect on the evidence and I look at all of that myself, one, saturated fat does not cause heart disease. That's a complete myth. It's complete nonsense. And this is coming from... Not just a GP, but a cardiologist. You yeah, firmly I, believe and you've operated on people and you're talking the heart, the heart, the heart the whole yeah. time. Um, that it's not saturated fat. It isn't saturated eat, fat. And we're talking about foods that are like butter, cheese, you know, uh, red meat. And, and I've analysed that and published on that research and looked at the evidence in its totality. I've not cherry-picked things. Yep. What does it tell us? It tells us there's really no link at all uh, uh, with, with death rates, with type 2 diabetes, with stroke, with heart disease, with heart attacks. Even if you're a heart attack patient and you reduce saturated fat, it doesn't have any benefit for you. So in all those groups, it's really should, you know, the very least should not be anywhere close to being a focus of reduction mm -hmm. of, of what you should be eating. Um, and as a result, we've increased our consumption of carbs particularly low-quality carbs. I'm not yeah. talking about whole fruit and vegetables. I'm talking mm -hmm. about, you know, too much bread, pasta, rice, potatoes. That, that, that one-third of the well, Eat Well guideline, Eat Well plate that's in front of us, that the government still pedal as a healthy uh, option where you've got whole, you've got yeah, cereals, potatoes, it, breads, bagels, rice, spaghetti, it, pasta, all the things it, that we know are highly processed these days. Exactly, and it's not just that. They say this should be the base of your diet. This has been the guidelines in the base of your diet. You should be getting this as the base of your diet and then add anything else on top of it. And basically what you're getting is foods that are relatively uh, poor in nutrition combined with being very starchy and high in glucose. Yeah. The condition, the problems we're dealing with are related to too much glucose. Type 2 diabetes is a problem of carbohydrate intolerance written, related to too much glucose over time that affects you know, your body's ability to metabolize it. 50% of high blood pressure is again related to, um, you know, I'll use a term called insulin resistance, mm -hmm. but in, in, in layman's terms, I would describe that as having excess body fat really um, related to diets that are high in starch and sugar, basically. Sure. And, 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 and that is at the root of all the problems. Um, and in absolute layman's terms, the body re creates in sugar glucose in the bloodstream is in effect a poison to the body. So you either use sugar as an energy, 
but it can't stay in the bloodstream. So insulin is literally a hormone that's released to grab and, and grab that sugar and put it in your body as, and store it as fat for a future energy because it can't stay in the yeah. bloodstream. If it's not utilized, it's absolutely. Not utilized. absolutely and, so. and, and carbohydrates drive more insulin way more than fats and proteins. Absolutely right. Uh, and therefore, insulin resistance is where, like you're in a noisy office, the cells go, you keep sending me all this fat, stop sending it me, and that fat it's sending you isn't from fat. That fat is from too much carbohydrates. You've hit the nail on the head. I just wanted to go really you've layman hit, terms there. You've hit the nail on the head, yeah. and that's exactly the problem we're dealing with. And then, and so I want, really, the reason I wanted to go there, like you're passionate about, obviously, the, the tragedy very at a young age, your brother, you know, my dad is now diabetic type two, and the advice he's got from his GP, who must be very, very busy, is just eat less of anything that you're eating already and inject yourself every day and you'll be fine. And I keep saying to my dad, but, but and I feel, I feel so sorry for GPs because the eat well guideline we've got in front of us is still the government's guideline. And it just is fundamentally wrong. Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's, it's flawed. And I think things are shifting and changing, but we need to act more Only because of people like yourself and David Unwin and, and Malcolm Kendrick that are prepared to say, we're doctors and this is wrong and it has to change. So first of all, I want to say a big thank you to you because, well, Ansel Keys might, and I, I hate saying things like this for somebody who's not here to defend himself, but may be the biggest mass murderer on the planet because the Eat Well guideline is, came out the back of Ansel Keys' uh, research. Luckily today we've got people like yourself standing up and, and, and saying, look, this is wrong, we have to change it. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, even Ansel Keys later on realised the cholesterol hypothesis was flawed. And he actually was quoted in the New York Times in 1987 saying that actually I've come to realise and believe cholesterol is not as important as we used to think it was. But by that time, you've got this whole, whole industry, industry yeah, yeah. multi-million dollar that yeah. stage industry, now it's billion, maybe trillion dollar industry when you had in cholesterol and drugs and all of that. Um, you know, and, and uh, that is the extraordinary thing, that this guy was the architect behind it. <laughs> so and he couldn't, he couldn't get papers published yeah. that almost refuted some of his original research, which is actually what a good scientist does, because I think on that note as well, to try and explain to the, to the Joe public, yeah. you know, hold on a minute, but how did he get it wrong? What, can I not trust my doctor? One of the things I always tell my patients is medicine is not an exact science, mm -hmm. it's an art. Okay, and we use information and evidence to try and help people improve their health outcomes. But things change and it evolves. And one of the fathers of what we call the evidence-based medicine movement, I'm also a professor of evidence-based medicine, which is basically analyzing information to try and give people, you know, make them, help them make truly informed choices about their health. Um, and his name was David Sackett, Professor David Sackett, the late David Sackett, and he said 50% of what you learn in medical school will turn out to be either outdated or dead wrong within five years of your graduation. Oh, the trouble is crikey. nobody can tell you which half, so you have to learn to learn on your own. So and I, and let's, I only... just, let's just pause there for a second because <laughs> if David Sackett's saying half of what you learn in medical school will turn out to be wrong, dead wrong, or dead wrong. Or outdated. Or outdated, and, but GPs are so busy all day, every day, and we get under more stress, so how, it must be very difficult for doctors to keep up to date with the new science and the new way of thinking because they're trying to treat, you know, treat patients for long hours every day. Yes. Therefore, how do you keep up to date with all the, the new news? Yeah, and it's difficult. Yeah. Um, but that's why we have so-called guideline bodies that then advise GPs, that GPs trust to be rigorous and independent with the evidence. But what I've learned, as well as you know, acknowledging this, 
uh, Steve, I only really myself, I was a conventional doctor and did things by the book. But what, what the, one of the reasons I changed my thinking is I thought this is not working. Yes. If we are doing everything right, why are more? Why is the NHS under? Why have we got this healthcare crisis? Yes. Why have we got more misery and chronic disease? Something we're doing something wrong here. Mm -hmm. Someone is certainly responsible for this. If we're not collectively responsible for it, so it was only when that was also one of the things that triggered me to say, "Hold on a minute, this is this something not right." Let, let's really try and get into the heart of why this is happening. Um, and yeah, we have these guideline bodies. But what I've also learned, unfortunately, is there is too much influence, to put it politely. Mm -hmm of industry, whether it's a drug industry or the food industry, on those very people that we rely on to give us independent advice. And I'm talking about, you know, millions of pounds, sometimes hundreds of millions going to certain institutions. It's not about people taking backhanders and yep. going on a yacht for a lovely holiday or whatever else. This is just the culture in the system. And then people get promoted as well as, you know, if you have a flawed hypothesis and you don't accept what David Sackett says, you know, you don't challenge your own ideas, then you're not really a good scientist. Yeah, you said it really distinctly in an interview I, I, I watched on the television. You said, there are a number of factors behind this, such as biased funding of research, funded because it's likely to be profitable and not because it's benefits to the patient. Yeah. You said, biased reporting in medical journals, biased pa uh, patient pamphlets, biased reporting in the media, commercial conflicts of interest, defensive medicine, and last but not least, is a medical... Uh, circular that's failed to teach doctors how to compre comprehend and communicate health statistics. And when I, when I, when, when I, I, I rewinded that and, and, and went back three or four times listening to it, and I thought, everything you say there is absolutely correct. It's not because you know, people, most people work for a company, they get paid, therefore they have to believe that their drugs are good. And the reality and the evidence now is proving very much case. You know, like statins, a very good friend of mine's on statins. He doesn't even know why he's on statins. Very... <laughs> influential, well-known person, uh, and yet, you know, I learned the other day, it takes 300 people taking a statin to get one positive outcome. Well, I'm sure that's not what my friend's doctor told him. Yeah, you know, and so. I think, you know, for that, you're right, and that applies to people who are what we call low risk of heart disease. There are people that, with heart disease, that according to the evidence that's published, albeit a pinch of salt, I take with it because it's all industry-sponsored trials, but the best case scenario is one in, if you've had a heart attack, 183 will benefit over five years in terms of delaying their death, and one in 39 will have a heart attack prevented. But if you're not in that category, you're not gonna live one day longer, and there may be a one in 300 chance, as you say, of it preventing a non-fatal heart attack. But the issue I have is that, again, patients are not told this, and in fact, most doctors don't acknowledge or comprehend the statistics in that way, yes. which is actually now, even the World Health Organization in 2009 put a bulletin out essentially from the uh, man who's considered the world-leading um, researcher in health literacy. He's called Gergi Gorenza. I've met him, uh, and he's at the Max Planck Institute in, in Berlin. Uh, very, very smart guy. And uh, he put this bulletin out, and he basically said, unless you tell patients this when you're prescribing a drug, when you've got that information, it's basically unethical. So we have collectively, I'm, I'm, I say this, I've been public about this, I, I'm, you know, I'm happy to take anyone who wants to challenge me on it, but it hasn't happened so far, is that I've said this in talks, I've said it in the United States, I've said it all around the world, that we have unwittingly been practicing unethical medicine. Not on purpose, yep. unwittingly. By not explaining the statistics and the likelihood of success from the drugs to the patient, 
to let them make an informed decision. In a transparent way, exactly. Yeah. And that's also because, and it sounds strange because people find this odd, it's hard to believe, it's, and it's not rocket science, it's very basic statistics, is that you know, on 70% on of healthcare professionals, including doctors, fail basic tests on their understanding of evidence-based medicine. So there needs to be a cultural shift. This was not something I learned in medical school, yep. you know, um, but this needs to be a kind of something that's shifted also in the way we learn, the way we teach, the way we communicate with our patients, so that we're more open and transparent. And the reason, the other interesting thing about that, Steve, is that when patients are given all the information about a drug or a surgical procedure, about the chances of benefit, in general, you'll find people tend to choose less of that. Sure. And then you've got, well, what are the, you know, so one of the things... Dr. David Unwin said it beautifully the other day. He said, I get most excited when a patient comes in if I can de-prescribe. So he said, the whole thing for me now is how do I de-prescribe drugs to somebody and get them back to looking at their lifestyle and their diet. I thought, what a lovely thing for doctors, rather than you know, over-medicating that we've got into this culture where many people that are my age plus are on four or five medications. How can we de-prescribe and actually actually prescribe a, a change in life, yeah. uh, a, a change in no, lifestyle? No, exactly. Another thing, you know, I say, I mean, I am exactly the same. You know, I, um, I agree with David Gray and, you know, in a lot of things, and I think that we need more doctors to think about when a patient comes in with a new symptom, the first thing I think about, could this be a side effect of their pills? I think that's all doctors should do that because we've got mm -hmm. an over-medicated society. Yeah. But I think another a great line, uh, you know, which I, I use is, um, good health rarely comes out of a medicine bottle. Yeah. In fact, let's, let's use that to get back to a question I asked earlier. Then I dragged you off because we, we, we love to let everybody know that, that, that we're all fed the wrong information, not just the wrong food, but the wrong information. But I, I, I mentioned at the right beginning, your documentary, Big Fat Fix. So you go back to southern Italy to look at why people there are living longer lives, where in the UK, if you take out, uh, if you look at the, at the sort of adult population, we're definitely not living as long now as we used to do. So our lifespan is becoming shorter. And there's some doctors now and, uh, and researchers saying that my children's generation may live 10 years shorter than mine. Now that's scary and unacceptable, but you went back to Southern Italy where lots of people are living into their, you know, centenarians. What did you discover about the food? Yeah, so just very quickly on that, um, Steve, before I talk about that. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So just to give an example, type 2 diabetes, which is the single biggest cost as a condition to the NHS at the moment, counts for about 10% of the NHS budget. If you get type 2, your average life expectancy is reduced from anything from about 5 to 15 years. And wow. those people have more chronic issues with it. So more depression, more chronic pain, more sleep disturbance, more stress for a longer period. So it's not just about how long you live, it's how well you live. Yes. And that's what we want. We want people to live as well as they can for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. So what did we discover? Um, coming back to the roots of this to understand what we can all do to give ourselves a better, best chance of good health and happiness is the roots of this are insulin resistance we talked about and chronic inflammation. So the body really... Um, being in a state where it kind of is constantly almost attacking itself and the cells in the body that, whether it's the heart or, you know, whether it's the pancreas or the liver or the brain. So these are the two conditions we're dealing with. To solve those or to address those, essentially the same things. So the components of the diet, certainly, that seem to be, have the best evidence of being, um, you know, healthy and anti-inflammatory, if you like, and deal with insulin resistance are, I would say, so my, my personal base of the diet I, I recommend to my patients is, you know, um, lots of whole vegetables, 
some whole fruit as well, absolutely. Um, maybe less on the sugary fruits if you're diabetic or overweight, but mm -hmm. low sugar fruits are fine, and obviously you can have some of the other stuff if you're reasonably active. Um, extra virgin olive oil, oily fish, a handful of nuts every day, mm -hmm. um, you know, some nutritious uh, full-fat dairy if you can tolerate dairy. Um, and then one that is also low in, very low, if, if not zero, of no added sugar in your diet, yes. to little sugar, um, less of the refined carbohydrates, the low-quality carbs, kind of a bit, but it shouldn't be the base of your so diet. So all the white stuff, cut down the pasta of the potato. Exactly, the but you can have, you know, have those occasionally. It depends where you are as well. If you're relatively slim and healthy, then you probably can get away with a bit more. But the one thing I think the common denominator um, across, you know, it, one thing we learned in Piopi, for example, when it came to sugar, traditionally this is a, a region that, you know, is always very healthy. How often did people eat sugar in Piopi? It was once a week on a Sunday as a dessert. These days, Steve, as you know, people are having sugar almost three times a day. If you have yep. cereal, they'll have something sweet maybe with their lunch, and then they have dessert you know, uh, in the evening meal. You're having it constantly, and that is really detrimental to the body over time. And that's the added sugar, the fact that potatoes, rice, pasta, uh, spaghetti all turns into sugar inside the body, so you're adding sugar onto sugar, onto sugar yeah. all the time. I mean, you? that's a good point. I think, to be fair, um, to pay devil's advocate a little bit on that. So I think if you're, and David Unwin's done some a great graphic, oh, as you know, that. on the on the, how it converts to yeah. glucose. Mm -hmm. The real issue we're talking about, which has a separate detrimental effect, is fructose, which yeah. is the added sugar. Mm -hmm. So sucrose, table yeah. sugar, whatever, which is added to, is 50% fructose and 50% glucose. Glucose, we don't necessarily need from our diet, because if the body, it's, it's, we can't live without it. You know, all the cells of our body, if you like, need glucose to survive. We cannot survive without glucose. We can survive without dietary glucose. The reason I say that is even if you don't get it from your diet, your body, because it's so essential, your body will make it anyway sure. from the liver and from yep. proteins and et cetera. So you will, you will need, we need some um, from the body. But you're right, in the sense, if you are overweight, if you're obese, if you've got type 2 diabetes, starchy foods are going to have a pre pretty detrimental impact on your health. Now, if you are not in that category and you don't have any added sugar on top of it and you're having a bit of starch amongst the vegetables and all the other stuff, you're probably going to be okay. But this is really a minority of people we're dealing with in, in the world right now, and mm -hmm. certainly in the Western world, who are in that category yes. of metabolically. It's actually a smaller proportion. The other thing is, as you get older, then your body becomes more insulin resistant as part of the aging process. So let me give any example. I'm not going to name anyone, but I've seen quite a few athletes, former professional footballers, great athletes in their day. And you look at them now, they're not that old. They're in their 50s, maybe 60, and they have got a pot belly. Yeah. And I know as a doctor straight away that they, they have probably, you know, for a certain amount of time being very active, got away with, with very high levels of activity, getting away with eating very starchy and sugary foods. They, so their activity you know, was going to slow down because that's, you can't sustain that into, you know, as you get older to that level. And they're eating the same foods, bang, it's a problem. So even people now that look at themselves and maybe watch saying, oh, I'm fine, I'm in the gym and I've got a six pack and I'm downing a, a bit of Lucozade and having a banana, mate, it's not going to last. I think, you know, you better get on top of it sooner rather than later. Well, that, that, that's, you just described my life, you know, I was very active, very sporty. Uh, eating lots of carbohydrates because that's what I was told before I did a marathon or a big run or a big cycle or a big sailing event. Eat loads and loads of carbs, carbs load. 
And then as you age and you're doing a little bit less sport, my stomach just went bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. To a point now, I honestly believe, and it's probably complete fiction, but I believe if I smell bread, I put on weight. You know what I mean? It's just, I can't go anywhere near processed carbs these days. I think with, yeah, and and, and, yeah. and is, it, is it true that possibly the problem for me is that I've actually damaged my metabolism such that in the early days, therefore my younger children now, I've got to do everything to make sure they don't have too many carbs just to protect that metabolism and keep them on that right path? Um, well, actually, the, the good news is that this stuff is reversible. And excuse me, and it's reversible quickly. Mm -hmm. So when I say that, um, one of the interesting things I discovered with my own research into this is that dietary changes impact on heart disease risk and risk of heart attacks, etc. Uh, actually, true heart attacks and, and death are very rapid, even within a few weeks to months, just by changing your diet. You, it's it's not a long haul, yeah. which I think is important for my patients to, to un understand as well, because I think if they think it's a, a, an uphill battle, yeah. I think they're less likely to try that change and think, bloody hell, this is, you know, if it's yeah. taken years for me to get this way, it's going to take years for it to reverse it. Not true. Just to give you another example on that, Steve, one thing which is really fascinating that really people find really interesting to hear is when we got dramatic reductions in smoking prevalence in the population, the heart attack rates and death rates dropped really quickly. I'll give you one example. Helena, Montana in the United States okay. introduced a public smoking ban, just a public smoking ban. So it was out of the environment, smoke. And within six months, there was a 40% decrease, absolute decrease in heart attack rates. Wow. Tobacco lobby so came quick, in. It, it was. Yeah. Tobacco lobby came in, law was rescinded. So then the smoking ban was, they got rid of it. And then within, again, within a short space of time, the heart attack rates went back up. How do you explain that biologically? Just 30 minutes of exposure to passive smoking increases the clottability of blood. We call it plate, platelet activity. Okay. Increases the clottability of blood. blood. Ah. You remove that from the environment, the clottability of blood reduces, less heart attacks. We should think about diet in the same way. And the impact on diet and health seems to be similar. So it's never too late That's to really make a difference. And you will notice an impact very, very quickly. We talk about, you know, Piopi Diet was a book written on the back of, you know, the, the Big Fat Fix. And we obviously, diet is a big component, but they also live in a relatively stress-free environment. You know, there was no, well, smoking was there a little bit, but it wasn't that, that prevalent. It certainly wasn't in the UK. Um, and and they, were, they were constantly moving, and we're going to obviously talk about exercise shortly. So that was obviously all of those things combined. But, so stay on that for a second, yeah. because um, actually if you think back to Ansel Keys, and it was at a time when the president of America had had a heart attack. And Eisenhower, yeah. Eisenhower, and they, they blamed, of course, they forgot the fact that he was a heavy smoker. They just blamed the fact that it was saturated fat, and that's where it all started going really, really wrong. Um, but... I'm going to ask you a question, and don't have to answer if you don't want to, but um, I asked Malcolm Kendrick this question, of course, he's also a leading expert on protecting the heart. You're a cardiologist. If it's not saturated fat that causes the problem, if it's not really that much about cholesterol, you've just touched on stress. Give me four or five, because it is still the biggest killer in the UK. Yes. Give me four or five things that a seam believes, as somebody that's operate on people on their heart, but stents in and all sorts of things. Give me four or five things because I'm certainly that age now where I have to stop thinking about heart attacks, that people should do to limit their likelihood of having a heart attack. Okay, so when it comes to food, um, cut out the ultra-processed stuff. How do you define ultra-processed? I tell my patients this. If it comes out of a packet and it has five or more ingredients, 
Best avoid it. It's an occasional treat. The reason I mention that, 50% of our diet now in the UK, Steve, is ultra-processed food. That's and right, that is yeah. microwave stuff, stuff yeah. out of a packet, you know. So whole foods, vegetables, oily fish, olive oil, handful of nuts every day. Um, don't fear fat in a sense, you know, full-fat dairy, cheese, yogurt, all that kind of stuff. These are the things that should be the base. Get your good nutrition. Avoid cut out refined sugars, refined carbohydrates, and the rest of it doesn't matter. So if you get that right yep. from your diet, you're most of the way there. How much stress have you got? If you, people, it's subjective, but if you feel stressed, you are stressed. Yep. So are you getting seven hours of sleep a night? If not, why not? Do something about it. I've personally even started meditating. And there are various things people can do. Um, there's an app I use called Calm. Mm -hmm. I try and do 20 to 30 minutes every morning before Brilliant. I start the day. Um, there is good evidence that it's um, anti-inflammatory, it reduces you know, cortisol, stress responses, all of the things that contribute to what we talk about, insulin resistance, inflammation. Very powerful, I see it with my patients, so some of them, heart attack patients, transform their lives. And they said for them, that had the biggest impact on their sense of well-being and happiness. Of course, you can do all the dietary stuff, and yes. that's really important, but that was also a big component mm -hmm. for them. So it's also about feeling good. It's mm -hmm. not just about reducing the risk of heart attack, because you, know, you wanna enjoy your life, they feel happier. Um, now, when it comes to activity, you know, I've been very active all my life. I was um, a very avid sportsman. I captained sports teams at school, university. Um, you know, I understand why I exercise. A lot of it was for health. Some of it was because for me, and like many people, it is like a drug. You get a euphoria from mm -hmm. it. Um, but it's good for mental health as well. But when it comes to longevity, when you look at all these places around the world where people live really long and well, there were no gyms, mate. I don't know gyms in these places. They didn't, well, they, didn't, they didn't do any exercise. I'm going to stop you right now because we're going to do a whole separate hour on <laughs> why too much exercise might actually be detrimental to health. So I'm going to stop you on that one right now because it really is fascinating. But put that on one side, the exercise. So you're saying eat the right things and there are certain things you need to cut down or avoid, reduce stress, get more sleep. Uh, get out in the sunshine as well. As Absolutely. One of Absolutely. Big things. And I think one of the things that... Uh, I, I think and feel as affecting society more than it ever has done is that uh, I think we've stopped behaving as a community mm -hmm. as much as we used to. And that what that means is think about your social life, your relationships, your friends, your family, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, mum, dad, whatever. You know, these are really important, actually, aspects to what we find in P.O.P. Yep. to actually good health because we find that when you've got a good, strong sense of community, if anything, you know, there are certain things that are not controllable in our lives, what's going on in the external world. Yep. But if you have those good relationships and sense of community, it acts as almost like a protective mechanism against those other things that are happening. But if you're alone, you've got social isolation, and you're not really communicating. Well, I'm not talking about going on social media or Facebook or Instagram. I think there are some good things that have come with that, but there's a lot of bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not a good way to interact with people, actually. It's, it's about sitting down, having a conversation. You know, what happened to the British lunch hour? What happened to us sitting yeah. down and having a meal together? Having a conversation without a phone or a screen distracting yeah, Real us. human interaction. This is really, I think, a really crucial crucial component. Of well, you know, health. the World Health Organization, I can't remember if it was the 1940s or 1950s, they, they said uh, there are three pillars of health. There is physical health, mental health, and social health, or well-being yeah. was the words I think they used. 
And so even then, before the invent of too many people now getting you know, isolated on their phones and doing everything you know, electronically rather than proper interactions, even back 50, 60 years ago, the World Health Organization said that a part of being healthy is a good social well-being. And you can't underestimate that, I don't Absolutely. think. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, without sort of, uh, you know, digressing too much, even on that, so, I mean, I've, 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 I talk about this in the Piopidite book as well, um, is, and in fact, even the Big Fat Fix, you know, even intimate relationships with your partner. You know, we know that middle-aged men, for example, um, who have sex at least twice a week versus once a month, are 50% less likely to get heart disease. Wow. And it isn't about being ridiculous or permit. I'm talking, it's yeah. about, it's something that re reflects that um, good relationship yes. with the people who are close to you. We saw that when uh, a great book called The Blue Zones and uh, the writer was talking about Ikea, which is a small island, uh, a Greek island just off Turkey, and then an island in Japan. That Those intimate relationships, you, you know, people just live longer well, I guess it's a re several things happening at once. There. It's purpose. It's a belonging. Yeah. Uh, it's a reason to get up in the morning. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and for that mental health thing, Aristotle said, um, you know, no happiness is possible without friendship. You know, it's so crucial. So point. crucial. You need to share that sunrise with somebody, that experience with somebody. And it's great that I've sat here with yourself, sat here with Malcolm, two of the leading experts on hearts, and nobody has said cholesterol, statins. Nobody's mentioned uh, the saturated fat, all the things that if you went back 20 years ago, but it was, that was it. It was you've got to cut down your saturated fat and you've probably got to go on statins if your cholesterol's high. And that's so many people now that are saying cholesterol really has nothing to do. In fact, some Not people really. are now saying even what we class as the LDL cholesterol, I, thought, I think I've heard you say this before, even the LDL cholesterol, which is supposedly the bad cholesterol, past a certain age, Having too little of it is more yeah. dangerous than too much. Well, actually, so I uh, co-authored uh, original research, in fact, with Malcolm. Malcolm's one of the co-authors of 16 international scientists where we looked at the association of so-called bad cholesterol, LDL, with heart disease in people aged over the age of 60. So one, we found no association. <laughs> Two, strangely, there was an inverse association with death. In other words, the higher your LDL, the less likely you are to die. Now, remember, when, when we published this stuff, and I wrote about this in The Telegraph, um, and I talked about a patient who came to see me, a lady in her early 60s, walked into the consultation room in the NHS, and she looked really worried. She looked literally like she'd seen a ghost, and I said, what, what's wrong? She said, I'm, I'm really worried. My doctor's told me my cholesterol is high. Congratulations, you're gonna live longer. <laughs> and, and I explained this to her, and yeah. she left the consultation room reassured and happy. Yeah. Because again, stress is a killer. So you know, that, that <laughs> yeah. is part. To be honest, probably we might be causing more harm from the stress associated with being told you've got high cholesterol than the high cholesterol itself. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, my doctor, who's brilliant, I have an annual medical I've had to for something like 30 years now you know, for insurance for, for running companies. Uh, Dr. Kellerman in London, lover, adorer, go every year for my medical. Um, but she's still a bit old school. And, you know, so many times she's threatened to put me on statins because my cholesterol's high. And, uh, and you know, Considering she's taking so much money off me, and considering she's a good friend, and whenever somebody's ill in my family, I send them down to see her. She wouldn't even, my first book, give me a comment. She said, look, it's just too risky as a doctor to give a comment on a book. And it was like, so I know what all you guys are up against because it's so difficult for you to stand out and, 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 and to, to say, look, I think the Eat Well Guide is wrong. I think the cholesterol hypothesis is wrong. I think the saturated fat hypothesis is wrong. And it's just, thank goodness, that people like yourself, Malcolm, David, and a whole host of you now, all, again, coming together through the public health 
you know, coming together through the public health collaboration, are saying, look, we've, we've got to stand up. We've got to stand up. But do you feel sort of a weight of responsibility knowing what you've learned from visiting uh, Southern Italy, knowing what you've learned through all the research with Malcolm and other great uh, doctors and scientists? Do you feel sort of a weight of responsibility to get this message out? Do you have to like develop it really almost like a cowhide backside or really strong shoulders? Because, you know, I think you've said to once before that because you're up against corporations who love the fact that it's easy to say, and people talk about, we talk about statins being a multi-billion industry, the sugar being a multi-billion industry. You know, everybody's got a vested interest to make us all believe that that we sugar's fine, fat's the enemy, and the reason we're all overweight and dying younger now is because we're too, you know, we just don't move enough. Do you feel sort of a weight of responsibility to get this message out? Yeah, to be honest, Steve, I'm just doing what I signed up to. My duty as a doctor primarily is to scientific integrity and my patients. That's all that drives me. And when I see what happens to them, the misinformation they're given, um, and how it harms their health, that for me actually visceral and emotionally also affects mm -hmm. me as well. I think this is just wrong. It's a, it's an injustice. You know, and what people like myself and Malcolm and, and David Unwin, what we are trying to do and achieve really is, you know, if we want this revolution to occur, which is mm -hmm. needed, one of the things we need to do is make that injustice visible. Right. Because most people, Steve, I believe, want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. People say, hate a sense of injustice. Yes. But they need to see that and then things will change. So this is all, you know, this is really what we're trying to do. But in that journey, as you've alluded to, um, you know, I, I've learned as well that you do have to have a thick skin. And um, there's, there's a very inspirational professor in Australia called Simon Chapman. And Simon Chapman wrote a paper about his 38-year um, career in public health advocacy, because that's what I am, in essence, a public health advocate, like many others in this space. And he says in this, and he took on Big Tobacco, basically, and he was the, the single most important figure, really, who was able to challenge big tobacco and get smoking bans introduced in Australia, et cetera. And he said that, you know, uh, unless your work is uncontroversial, unless if, uh, as soon as it threatens an ideology called Cabal, an ideology, a way yeah. of thinking, yeah. or an industry, you will be attacked sometimes unrelentingly and viciously. So you have to grow a rhinoceros hide. Mm. And I've had my fair share you know, you Google my name, you'll see, um, you know, you'll, you'll see probably a lot, of, a lot of good stuff, but you'll see some stuff that's really attacking me. But at least um, you've still got a Wikipedia page, whereas Malcolm Kendrick, <laughs> who's authored three amazing books, who's dead famous in the medical world, has disappeared off Wikipedia. Yeah. And I was with him the day it happened, and he, he said, do you think that's a compliment? I said, well, it probably is a compliment yeah, that you've I, just disappeared. Listen, I've always trusted Wikipedia, but when I got affected by it and they completely distorted my CV and everything I've been doing on Wikipedia, I realized it can't be trusted. Yeah. Um, or certainly certain aspects of it. Um, and uh, I don't know what's going on, uh, but friends of mine, journalists, have said that probably someone is paying you know, someone in the industry is paying somebody to make sure that when people Google your name on Wikipedia, it, it won't, it's not the most um, complimentary. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly not accurate. More importantly, it's not accurate. Yeah. So uh, it is what it is. It is what it is. And people have to at home understand that businesses are powerful. The world is today. All these big corporates, once they're floated on stock markets, America or the UK, the directors of those companies have one duty, and that's to maximize the return on investment for their shareholders. Nothing in their, in their corporate governance about 
health, well-being, looking after your customers. It's to maximise the return on investment for your shareholders, whether you're Coca-Cola, McDonald's, or whatever. And to that extent, when people like you put your head up and say, actually, you know, what you're selling is wrong, you shouldn't be sponsoring the Olympics, we, we've got to get our kids healthy, we've got to get them eating the right foods, they have so much money, so they have lobbyists. I don't know, they can't give the exact numbers, but yeah. there will be hundreds of people in these companies that are there to just silence people like you. In many that, ways, absolutely, you know, Steve, and I think... That in many ways, I don't blame those industries because they are profit-making businesses. The yeah. real issue is that those with a responsibility to patients and scientific integrity, so these are medical journals, academics, scientists, institutions, they collude with industry for financial gain. So for me, my biggest disappointment is actually people who should be protecting the public against these excesses and manipulations of industry mm -hmm. are not doing their job properly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you 100%. So I'm going to conclude this hour by saying, and let's just get this absolutely right, uh, you're a cardiologist that's, that's gone beyond just being a doctor. You've traveled around the world looking at areas where people live longer to discover you know, how you live longer. And in your own field of expertise, the heart, it is not about natural fats that are causing the problem. It's not really about cholesterol, the things we need to do is to eat real food without labels. Yes. Food that is wholesome and natural, that primarily we've been eating since mankind began. Avoid all the manufactured, chemically produced foods. Um, I say today that most, most food in the supermarket today has been designed, engineered, and manufactured for corporate wealth, not public health. So it's that whole thing of just trying to eat as natural as you can, try and avoid stress. You say, get out in the sun, avoid stress, relationships, you know, get back to spending time with others, try not to do it all on the mobile phone, real relationships. Um, so is that it in a nutshell? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and, I, and it sounds relatively simple, doesn't it? Yeah. But in the modern day, these things actually we are finding harder to do. And therefore, you know, it needs to be something that isn't just about giving advice to individuals, but also making sure that the environment they live in helps them behave in that, that way, whether it's a getting, you know, getting junk food out of hospitals, having healthy options available to everyone everywhere. You know, that needs government intervention as well. Yes. And talking of government intervention, you know, let's go back right to the beginning. Your story, your personal story with your dad, sadly your mum died last year, who was a vegetarian, I believe. Wasn't, and, she and, was. And, and partly that may have had... Yeah, no, so I grew up in a household with lots of uh, sugary treats and snacks. You yeah. know, my mum was, um, she was a very kind, caring person. My All my mates loved her because whenever they would come to our house or whatever, she'd always give them gifts and chocolates and things like that, <laughs> you know. But, um, but, you know, she herself had a lot of sugar. Uh, in her diet for a lot of her life, um, you know, was overweight, developed high blood pressure, survived a, a, sub a brain hemorrhage, uh, you know, um, from that when she was in her 50s, had to take early retirement. And then also her weight issues then affected her, her joints. She got osteoarthritis. Unfortunately, she got an, an autoimmune condition called rheumatoid arthritis. And over time, her health deteriorated. And um, she and didn't... was a doctor as well, She was a she? retired GP, yeah. yeah. And she didn't have enough protein. And that was definitely another issue. So... A lot of the foods that were vegetarian weren't necessarily the best vegetarian foods that she ate. Combine that with not eating enough protein, and we know that meat is a, an eggs, at least very least eggs, are a very good, strong mm -hmm. source of protein. And then that contributed to a deterioration in her health. 
obviously a lot of it rooted in the original food that she was eating. Yeah. And then she got an infection in her spine um, that was not able to be battled with, uh, combated with antibiotics, and she went into a coma and, and sadly died end of November. So, you know, I wrote an article actually in The Eye, um, which got a lot of coverage, basically explaining how, you know, there's, there is a movement at the moment, as you know, Steve, around people thinking that going vegan or vegetarian is healthier. There is no evidence really for that. Um, I think you can have a very healthy vegetarian diet. You can, in theory, have a healthy vegan diet, but the thing that really I don't um, subscribe to or think that isn't something people should do is because you really need to take supplements to survive on that. And if we're talking yeah. about a population being healthy, I don't yeah. think that, you know, something that is deficient in B12, you know, that for me, mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense. And plus I see a lot of patients who have been vegan uh, for a few years and it initially helped them and now are getting sick because of it. They go yeah. back to eating meat and dairy and eggs again, they're suddenly better. So I think we need to think a little bit more around that. Um, but yeah, so it's, you know, for that, that also had a profound impact on me. And now I'm also a very strong advocate to really fight that misinformation coming from again, there are vested interests connected to the whole vegan movement. Oh, 100%. You know, you know, the, the yeah. vegan movement initially was supported by Coca-Cola, the sugar yeah. industry. Um, there are people in this space who, who are basically saying this is the only way, the best way, and that people who advocate for low carb are selling, you know, spreading dangerous advice. I have no issue for people for their own personal ethical reasons. They don't want to eat animal flesh or animal products. I understand that my mum was like that, yes. and I respected her, and I understood yeah. where it came from her religious, uh, you know, her beliefs. Yeah, totally and, 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 and I totally that. respect that. But she never like, said to me, "Assume this is a healthier diet than what you're yeah. eating." She explained to me that she did it because she just didn't want to eat animals. Yeah, I mean, like you know, I spend a lot of time in India, and I've got lots of friends that are. I've got healthy friends that are vegetarian. I've got unhealthy friends that are, but if they're doing it for the, their love of animals and religion, that's absolutely fine. But if it's to save the planet, and we had a great gentleman in the other week called Patrick Holden, who used to run the Soil Association, who, who actually can say that if, as long as the animals are free roaming, they do more good for the planet than harm. We'll talk about that another day. So if you're doing it for environmental reasons, you're, you're probably wrong. If you're doing it for health reasons, you're almost definitely wrong because you will be you know, void of uh, good nutrition. In some ways, thank goodness, there are lots of vegetarians because one of my companies sells supplements and we sell far more supplements <laughs> to people that are vegetarian than we do for, for yeah, meat eaters sure. because they're, they're missing so many important uh, vitamins and minerals. But if you're doing it for health reasons or the planet reasons, reevaluate reasons if you're doing it yeah for, exactly if you're doing it for uh, it's about a really truly informed choice Absolutely. you know and that's uh, something i you know i have patients who are vegan i have friends one of the one of my friends who supported so we crowdfunded the big fat fix to remove any com commercial influence we yeah. with the help of new york times and men's health we were able to raise fifty thousand pounds to make that film and i want it to be clean and free of all that commercial influence um and one of my friends um you know she's a uh, devout, proper vegan. And for her, it's helped. She feels great. And she was a big supporter of the Big Fat Fix. I tell you, you know, there are, you know it's, um, yeah, there are lots of good people out there. So I want to end with, uh, I always say, what is, what's the legacy you want to leave behind? But I kind of know yours a little bit. Just quickly end with your legacy, but also tell me a little about Christian Bernard yeah. and uh, his influence <laughs> on, on, on your way of thinking. So Christian Barnard was uh, the pioneering heart transplant surgeon. He performed the world's first heart transplant, South African um, cardiac surgeon. And he, uh, it's a quote I often put up in, in my talks. And he said that I've saved 150 lives from heart transplants. If I'd concentrated on prevention earlier, 
I could have saved 150 million lives. And for me, you know, that totally resonated with uh, what I'm doing and why I've chosen this path, which is actually for the time being, I've stopped doing the keyhole heart surgery because, you know, I think I'd want to have much more effects uh, at, a, at a larger scale. And it's not even just about me. This is about getting a message out there. Because to finish on this as well, Steve, I think very philosophically about this as well. Um, individual personal happiness and contentment is never in isolation. We are all interdependent on each other. So if we make, if we can do things to help the community, more of us can help the community, we will benefit from that ourselves. That's a great place to end. Asim, thank you very much for coming in. Hope you all enjoyed that at home. Uh, and keep your eyes out and your ears out because we will be doing a separate talk about exercise and where that fits into a healthy lifestyle, living healthier and happier for longer. If you enjoyed the podcast and would also like to watch it online, you can find a webcam version on YouTube or the Primal Living website, www.primalliving.com. The Fat and Furious podcast is the perfect introduction to helping you and those you love live happier and healthier for longer. And if you are a fan of the series, then please let your friends and family know. They'll truly thank you for it, and so will we. Until next time, live life naturally.